Today, we uh, move into a study of the Gospel of John. And, and as we move into John, John's very different than the other, what we call the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, are synoptics. They all see the life of Jesus from the same perspective. Um, John sees it from a very different perspective. Um, it's not uh, that he disagrees. He's just presenting it, um, as Daryl Bach would say, John presents it from uh, heaven down, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke present it from the earth up. Matthew, Mark, and Luke start with genealogies and birth stories. Um, that is not where John starts. John starts with God in heaven and Jesus is God. He, he starts with this major theological statement. Uh, They're very different in their perspectives. Because of that, I've got some resources, a number of them, out at the Connection Center in addition to the chart that's out there. Uh, again, Daryl Bach and Dan Wallace on interpreting John, the occasion and purpose of John. Um, one of the scholars who spent most of his life really studying all of the Johannine epistles and, and John's writings is a man named Hall Harris. And I've got a one-page summary that he has um, that's part of a 400-page commentary uh, that's on Bible.org that you can get. It's a 400-page commentary. It's free to you. Uh, that 400 pages, he kind of puts in one page, and I thought this is worth uh, making available to you. Um, Hall's also got um, a much more complex article out there on, on the synoptics and how John is very different than the rest of the synoptics. Uh, it's two pages front and back, very small point, uh, type. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more next week, but just want you to have some resources out there. And then finally, there's an article there um, by Michael Heiser, and the title of the article is Everything in the Bible Isn't about Jesus, okay? Now, we're in the Gospels, and they are about Jesus. Um, but it's a good reminder that, that every single thing that happens in Scripture leading up to Jesus isn't immediately about Jesus. Tent pegs in the Old Testament, uh, the rules for cleansing leprosy and getting mildew out of your house, those aren't immediately about Jesus. Now, ultimately, Jesus is the solution for everything, but if you, if you kind of approach the Bible with this perspective that I have to find a connection to Jesus everywhere, um, you're going you're gonna to lose control and you're going to just be clever and creative more than interpreting Scripture. Uh, so it's a good reminder. However, John is about Jesus, okay? Uh, his perspective is different, but it's about Jesus. He's going to start with Jesus in heaven and he's God, and then he's going to say, and he became man, and here's what he did. He's going to do that in a, in a very different way than the other Gospels. But those other Gospels are all reflecting the life of Jesus, a life that we are pretty sure, almost all scholars agree, that Jesus was probably born in December of 5 B.C. or January of 4 B.C. Uh, that puts him going to the temple for his bar mitzvah in 8 A.D. There's a little bit of debate as to whether um, the Passion Week is in 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. Here's what we, we know. We know that the week that Jesus died, Passover was on a Friday. That could have been 30. That could have been 33. Um, I feel like the argument is really strong for 33 A.D. But I have these things up here because this is, these are real events. These are, are real, real-time things because Jesus actually lived through these things. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are going to select the life of Jesus in a particular way. They select with his birth and his genealogy, his family heritage. That's where they start. John's going to start in a very different spot. And so the question we have to ask is, why is John doing what he's doing? 
Um, now, in order to help us remember this, I've been going through this um, uh, week after week, and, and last week there were some exuberant young teenage girls who, who were very uh, exuberant about going through this, and I'm going to ask them to join me on the stage. So, McKinley, you're not with them. Come on up here, McKinley. Uh, Riley, come on. I, I need these girls, and I need all of you to stand up because we're going um, to review. Uh, you, guys, you guys just sit right here, just three of you right there, Okay. We're going to review the life of Christ, okay? So, um, girls, I'm behind you. I'm watching everything you do, okay? So, uh, life of Christ, kind of three movements, the preparation for Christ's life, um, four steps to that. We're going to start cradling a baby, okay? And it's going to be birth, then his baptism, temptation, and then he's teaching during that time, okay? So, let's do that again. Do it with your mouth as well, okay? On three, one, two, three. Birth, baptism, temptation, teaching. Then we get three years of Christ's uh, ministry. The first year is a year of obscurity, so you cover your eyes. Then popularity, be very queen-like. Yes, oh, oh McKinley's got it. She's, yeah, you can, even, you, you can even cock back on one leg and be popular, okay? That way, yeah, there you go. Popularity, okay? But because of his popularity, the religious leaders then are in opposition to him all the time he is training his disciples. Let's do that. Ready? One, two, three. Obscurity, popularity, opposition, training. Then, as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and and, um, by the time you get to chapter 13 in John, he's in Jerusalem. Um, When he gets there, there's a trial. We're going to do a gavel, a trial. And then there's going to be his crucifixion, his ascension, and his resurrection. Or his resurrection, then his ascension. I got to get one of them wrong every single time. Okay, so that one all together. Ready? Trial, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. All together, all 12 points, all together, nice and loud. Your, your hand motions are great. You're getting all stretched out. That's a great thing, okay? On three, all 12 motions. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Birth, baptism, te- teaching, obscurity, popularity, opposition, training, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Very good. Thank you, girls. That's very helpful. Now, given that that's the outline of Christ's life, we're going to have to look at why is John selecting very different things than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's going to select some very different things. He's going to arrange it in a very different way. He's going to be much more theological about his presentation. Um, He's going to um, arrange things not in parables or discourses, but in conversations. And what he's presenting is Jesus as the Son of God, And he's very clearly through the whole book calling for a response to believe and have life in Jesus' name. Now, John writes more than just the Gospel of John. John writes some epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and this is the same John who writes the book of Revelation. If I were to put together the whole what scholars call the Johannine corpus, if I take the whole Johannine group of writings together, it seems to me that what he's doing is, is he saying, first of all, in the gospel, Jesus came. You need to know he came. He's God. And if you believe, you can experience life in his name. He came so you could have life. I'm going to skip over here to the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, he's going to tell us he's coming back. But when he comes back, he's not coming back to redeem. He's coming back to judge. He's the judge. So be prepared for his return. In the middle, it's as if in the epistles, he's, John is basically saying this. 
He came, he's coming back. He came to redeem, he's going to come back to judge. And he is the truth. And Jesus is right here. He came, he's coming back, but he's right here with us. And he is the truth. So therefore, walk in love and walk in light. Because he came to provide you with life and become the light of the world. And he's coming back to judge and bring to light everything. While you're here, abide in him. Walk in love, walk in light. That's kind of how the whole thing fits together. Now, within that, the Gospel of John has some very particular purposes, and I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. Uh, but Mark Strauss, in his excellent book, has been listing these characteristics of the Gospels, and he does a great job with John. John has an emphasis on Jesus' identity as the Son who reveals the Father. Um, John is going to tell us that, that Jesus exegetes. Jesus explains the Father to us. What's the Father doing? What, what, is he, what, what is his relationship to us? Well, Jesus explains that by his life and his ministry. Um, it's a very simple vocabulary, but it's deeply significant. Um, when you start translating Greek when you're in seminary, the first book you translate is, um, is John, because the, the Greek of John is very, very simple. Um, now, in 24 years, I've never preached through John. You know why? Because I'm scared of the book. It is simple to translate, but man, the, the theological complexities and depth of it, um, I've kind of shied away from for 24 years. Now, I will let you know when we're finished with this series, John's where I'm going to go. I think we're going we're gonna to jump into John here. Um, his key thematic terms are life, believe, abide, and light. Jesus brings life. Uh, we need to believe to get that light, abide in him, and walk in the light. He has a strong black and white perspective. You're either in or you're out with, with John. There's no gray areas. His miracles are identified as signs revealing Jesus' identity. Jesus reveals the Father, and the signs reveal the Son. Um, there's spiritual symbols and metaphors like water and light and bread and shepherd and gate. He's, he loves these metaphors. Um, he's the one who gives these seven I am statements about Jesus. I'm going to show them to you. Um, the motif of misunderstanding. People, people misconstrue Jesus's words. And because of that, um, there's a, a lot of irony in, in how people, they, they think they understand one thing, but it means something else. Um, he focuses on personal interviews with people like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Remember, Matthew presents things in these big giant discourses that parallel the Torah. Um, Mark is going to present the action of Jesus, all the things he's doing. Um, Luke is going to present a lot of material in parables. John is going to present Jesus' teaching in these dialogues with, with other people. He's going to have dialogues and debates with the religious leaders who are in opposition to him as soon as he becomes uh, uh, popular. Um, the chronology of the book is based on the Jewish festivals. Um, an observant Jew would have gone to Jerusalem three times a year, in the spring for Passover, in the summer for Pentecost, and in the fall for the Feast of Tabernacles. There were some other things that go along with those, uh, those feasts, but those three times they would have come up every year. So Jesus, in all likelihood during his ministry, came up to Jerusalem um, at least nine times, maybe even 12 times, uh, depending on exactly how you date his ministry. But John is the one who kind of tells us this was his first Passover, this was his second Passover, this was his third Passover. Um, the author of the book styles himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never identifies exactly who he is. He just says the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's kind of enigmatic. Um, it's John. It's one of the apostles. 
But because he doesn't identify himself, boy, scholars have a, have a field day trying to decide, okay, maybe it's this guy, maybe it's this guy. Um, it's John, okay? <laughs> uh, there's a clear statement of his purpose, more clear than any of the other gospels, other than Luke, maybe. Um, he says his gospel is written for the purpose of proving who Jesus is and calling for your response of believing in him. And, and he has teachings concerning the Holy Spirit and how he's going to guide. Basically, um, God loves us and he sent Jesus. Jesus explains the Father to us. He redeems us, and then when he leaves, he's going to come back. But in the meantime, he, lives the, he leaves the Holy Spirit to help us abide in him. That's what's happening, okay? That's, that's John, the survey of all the things going on there. Um, Scott Duvall says this, The vocabulary of John is not technical. The language is plain, but the meaning is profound. The church father, Augustine, is often quoted as saying, the gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. We give a copy of John to children and new converts, yet scholars continue to wrestle with its theological message. John is a unique and refreshing companion to the synoptics. Enjoy it. It is a very different perspective, um, but it's really, really wonderful. Um, I mean, it was no mystery that I'm preaching on John this week. I've preached on Luke last week, um, and um, I got an, a, a text from somebody uh, this week um, who, who, knowing that I was going to preach on John, uh, gave me her comments. Heather Harrison sent me a text, and she said this, the gospel of John, gosh, I love it so much. It's a beautiful and profound gospel in so many ways. I can't get over how he doesn't refer to himself by name, but by the label, the one Jesus loves. How audacious. I mean, it's one thing to believe in Jesus and even believe he is loving, but to be convinced of his love for you and to have the audacity to not just wear the label, but to ident be identified by that label instead of your own name, that's next level. Almost like belief mixed with courage, mixed with whimsical humility. I want to be convinced of his love like that. To be willing to have his love identify me more than my own name, Heather, the one Jesus loves. I want to have that kind of audacity and assurance of his love. I'm hoping that after you get a little introduction to the Gospel of John, you would, you're going to go to it and you're going to find that, that he does love you. <laughs> you are the one who he loves. Now, who is this disciple that Jesus loved? Well, he identifies himself as the one who Jesus loved. He was also the disciple who sat beside Jesus in the upper room. It's the institution of the Lord's Supper. He's the disciple that Peter motioned to when, when he uh, was there. This means that he was one of the 12, since we know that only the 12 were in the room. He was one of the seven disciples mentioned in chapter 21 that there was a resurrection appearance to him uh, by the Sea of Galilee. The disciple whom Jesus loved was also one of the inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James, and John. The disciples are kind of, they have these rings of, of, of um, popularity or, or uh, material that's given to them. Peter's the most prominent. Um, but then there's this inner circle of Peter, James, and John. They're, they are there on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're kind of the inner circle of that. Um, if I'm going to add two more that I, I, we know a little bit more about, you can add Andrew and Philip. Um, because they're always bringing people to Christ. And then maybe Thomas on the outskirts of that. And, and then the rest of the disciples, we just don't really know very much about them. There's not much material uh, about many of them. But, this, but, but John, um, he's part of that inner circle. And, and he's really not bombastic like Peter. He's, he's much more laid back. And he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
significantly, this John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is tasked with caring for Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the cross. Um, when Jesus is literally hanging on the cross, he looks down at John and he says, John, behold your mother. I need you to take care of her because I'm going away. Um, not only is he tasked with caring for Mary, but it's clear all the rest of the disciples have left. And, and only John is at the foot of the cross. John and some of the women. He's the only disciple who stayed to the very end. Um, I mean, he, he knew he was loved, but he also loved his Savior to the very end. Who's John's original audience? This gets a little more complex. John's explanation of Jewish customs, translation of Jewish names, his locating Jewish um, sites suggests that he was writing for Gentile readers who were primarily outside of Judea and Galilee. He has to explain the locations to them. He was at the locations. He's an eyewitness of this. He was a companion of Jesus. They weren't there, so he's got to explain it to them. Um, These Gentile Christians were probably a mixture of Christians and unbelievers. You're going to see that in just a minute. John's readers were primarily second-generation Christians Christians who who he was familiar with and to whom he seemed pastoral. He's shepherding them. He he doesn't feel detached. He feels very connected and in a shepherding role for them. Um, But they're second-generation Christians. They're they're not the initial converts who who were converted because they saw Jesus. They have been... um, converted by the ministry of others. So um, when, when is this written? The most common viewpoint is that John wrote very late at the end of the first century, perhaps around 90 to 95. Um, a, a lot of people feel like he's, well, he's certainly the last gospel written, and they think maybe even way farther down the road because he's so theological. He's worked out a bunch of theological categories. Maybe he wrote in 90 or 95. Um, Others believe that he wrote before the destruction of the temple, which took place in 70 AD, placing it in the, in the mid-60s, around the time Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. But he seems to clearly be writing something very different than them. He, he's writing after them. So he's late, maybe late 60s, but maybe even 60 years after the resurrection when a lot of things have been, have been figured out. Uh, when was it written? It seems clear that the original draft of the gospel ends with chapter 20. By the way, that's just... Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, at the end of that chapter, is very clearly the end of what he was wanting to write because he says, this is why I wrote these things. He gives you the purpose statement. We're going to see it in just a minute. But there's a chapter 21. The question is, what in the world is going on with chapter 21? Why does he append chapter 21? Something happened, perhaps the death of Peter, maybe even the death of Paul, which may have prompted John to add an appendix, which we have as chapter 21. If this reconstruction is accurate, then the date would likely have been 60s rather than the 90s. We have to grapple with chapter 21, and, and chapter 21 really focuses on, on Peter. If, if you end in chapter 20, Peter's kind of on the outs. P- Peter has left and abandoned. Um, chapter 21 gets Peter back in the fold, and so uh, it seems like something has happened there. Uh, Dan Wallace, who takes an earlier date in the 60s, he says, in short, John wanted to give Paul's churches the gospel because Paul had died. He wrote the last chapter in haste as his final catalyst to his efforts because Peter had died. He's basically going, Peter and Paul have died, uh, and I need to get this record. I was an eyewitness, um, and, and so I need to get this record out there, and, and he is going to get that record to them. Where were he and his readers? John, more than any other gospel, seems to have a broader set of readers in mind when he writes. If he's writing later in the 90s, 
it seems like what he's, he's very aware, it's been a long time and Jesus hasn't come back. I've got to get this set, not just for the immediate audience, but he seems to be aware he's writing for people way down the road, way down the road. Uh, he records some things, uh, particularly in Jesus's um, high priestly prayer in, in John chapter 17, that, that makes allusions to, to you and I, people who, who are way down the road, who aren't Jewish, who are, who are believers. Perhaps his original audience lived in the Roman province of Asia. John lived in Ephesus during the latter part of his life, and his audience may have been in Ephesus. Um, John has a lot of ministry uh, in Ephesus. Why was John written? John is explicitly clear that he's writing so that people will believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son, and have eternal life. We're going to unpack that. However, it is clear that, however clear it is that this is an evangelistic message, he tells people, believe. 98 times he's going to say, believe, believe, believe. It's also clear that John understands believers are reading this book. He's therefore giving them assurance about their own faith in Jesus. He's basically saying this, if you haven't believed, believe, because he is the son of God. And if you have believed, be strong in your belief, have confidence in your belief, because he is the son of God. And I'm going to present this book in a way that gives you confidence and bolsters your faith in that. Dan Wallace says it this way, clearly this gospel presents Jesus as the son of God, but it does more than that. It also expects a response from the audience a response of belief. Again, he highlights this word for belief is used 98 times. In some, in some, John presents Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, who is to be believed in in order that one might now pass from death to life. Again, as you're going to see, if you haven't believed, believe and you can pass from death to life. If you have believed, continue to strengthen your belief so you can experience that life. That's what's going on. How is John organized? Well, he starts with this prologue, this very famous first 18 verses in chapter 1 that are just theologically dense. They are, they are boy, they're just jam-packed with a lot of theology. Not much narrative, a lot of theology. Then he's going to move to Jesus' public ministry, mostly in Galilee with a few trips to Jerusalem. Then he's going to end up with Jesus in the upper room in his private ministry training his disciples from chapter 13 to chapter 17. Then his redemptive ministry on the cross, and then you have this epilogue that kind of parallels the prologue um, that has kind of everything started again for the disciples who are going to carry on that mission. So you have a prologue and an epilogue, his public ministry, his redemptive ministry, and in the middle, the upper room discourse, which is really where he, he gets um, all of the clarity there for the disciples who were there. Um, the chart that's out at your, the Connection Center. I'm going to highlight these in just a moment real briefly, but he does make these seven I am statements where he says, I am this, I am this. Um, he's going to scatter a bunch of other I ams where he says, I am. He, he's not going to say, I am the bread of life. He's just going to go, I am. And, and the, the religious leaders knew what he was saying. He was saying, I am the I am. That's what he's saying. Um, he gives these seven signs that, that are signs that, that validate who he is. The ultimate sign maybe the eighth sign, is the resurrection. Um, like I've mentioned, we're going to look at the prologue is going to highlight um, the theological message right there at the beginning of the book. And at the end of the book, he's going to give a very clear statement of his purpose. So what's the message? Here's the long version. John writing to churches in Asia, perhaps shortly after the death of Paul and even more recently the death of Peter, carefully selected events in the life of Christ 
which serve as signs of his deity, and he arranged Jesus' teaching of his disciples in order to demonstrate that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, and to invite people to believe in him and have life in his name. It's not just believe, it's believe and have this life. And that's where have this life is where all of us should be reading the Gospel of John. Here's the shorter version. The fully human Jesus. He was in the beginning with God, then he took on flesh. He he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. The fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the messianic king of Israel, teacher of the law, son of God, who will die for the sins of the world and bring eternal life to all who believe. Um. He's fully God, king of Israel, promised king. Um, He became a human, and he came, and as a human, king of Israel, son of God, he died for us so that we could have eternal life. And all it takes is for us to believe. Um, Again, I've talked again a lot about this purpose statement he has. If you go to chapter 20, these are the last two verses of chapter 20, and he says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. It's almost as if he's saying, Matthew, Mark, and Luke took care of that. They, they give you a bunch of other things that he did. But these things that I've written down, I've written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. My whole book is written so that you would believe he's the Messiah, Christ, anointed one, all the same word. He's the anointed promised one from the Old Testament who fulfills all of those promises that God said he made so that he would come and rescue us. And he's doing it now through his son. He's the son of God. And all you have to do is believe and you will have life in his name. In this, John is very evangelistic and and pastoral. He's basically going, hey, this is real history. He did these things in the presence of a lot of disciples. I'm focusing on just the things I want you to see. I wrote them down theologically for you so that you would believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and the result is you'll have life in his name. That, that's John. He tells you at the end, this is, you have to frame everything that happens in the Gospel of John with that purpose in mind. He starts off with this fantastic prologue. It is, um, I mean, to say it's theologically dense and deep and significant and complex is, is not even scratching the surface. Um, this prologue is just amazing. Um, and right in the middle of it, when he is basically saying, you know, it starts off in the beginning, like, like Genesis, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He's God. And he's going to talk about his ministry. Right in the middle of the structure of it is this response, to as many as receive him, to those he gave the authority to be the children of God. If you want to be the child of God, All you have to do is receive this message from him. Receive that he is who he said he is, the son of God. And he can do what he said he could do, redeem you through his death and resurrection. And if you receive that message, you're going to be the child of God. Now, flowing right out of this this prologue, um, these very important first 18 verses, the rest of chapter 1 has a lot of significant things that happen. Um, if you've watched the Bible Project, they highlight this. Um, the titles that Jesus is given in the second half of chapter 1, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, which means teacher. He's the Son of Man, Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth, King of Israel. They put this all together, all of these titles in the rest of chapter 1. The fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the Messianic King and teacher of Israel, the Son of God, and he will die for the sins of the world. Well, that's a great 
I mean, there's so many wonderful ways John packages his message. He's trying to make it as simple as he possibly can. Now, there it is in a nutshell. Um, John 20, 30, 31 is the gospel in a nutshell. But most people think of the gospel in a nutshell as John 3, 16. Um, Here's basically how I learned it. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth, is how I learned it in the King James, whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. How many of you know that verse? How many of you, just like, you can rattle that one off, okay? Um, I'm not going to tell you this verse doesn't mean what you think it means, but it means a lot more. Kind of like this. You got a very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. This verse, um, you keep quoting it your whole life, me too. It's not that it doesn't mean what you think it means. It means so much more. I'm going to start with just the word so. The third word in there, for God so loved the world. Okay, Even the English word so can mean either extent, he loved the world so much, or it can mean manner, he loved the world this way. He so loved the world. Here's how he loved it. All my life, I've thought it's extent. Just he loved the world so much. It's not what's going on here. This is, this is not extent, it's manner to be specific. And just so you don't think I'm out on an island, two recent translations, the Christian Standard Bible and the New English uh, translation, both of them translate it this way. And Ed Klink, a commentator, he says this, the term translated in this way, the Greek word is utos, is more often taken as an adverb of degree, which serves as a marker of a relatively high degree. God so loved the world, or God loved the world so much. But although utos can indicate high degree when individually modifying adjectives, adverbs, and adverbial phrases, when it, is, uh, when it occurs in combination with this word that's translated as that, oste, it serves rather, to, uh, rather retrospectively and is best translated in this way. Okay, So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with so, but when you hear so, for God so loved the world, it, it's in this way that he loved the world. This is how he loved the world. Let me put it, to, I'm going to expand this is really a lot here, okay? For, for this is the way, utos, that, that God loved the world. He gave his uniquely one-of-a-kind son. The, the, the term is in Greek is monogenes. It's um, only begotten. Who knows what only begotten means? Uh, it, it doesn't mean the only born, um, but it is the special unique son. This, this term, monogenes, um, is used of of Ishmael, Abraham's son. Now, Abraham had another, Isaac, Abraham had another son, Ishmael, but the special, unique son through whom the promises were going to come, that's, that's Isaac. He's the monogenes, the, the unique, the special, one of a kind. We can become the children of God. That's the promise of this book. We have the authority to become the children of God, but there's a unique, one of a kind only born, only begotten son, so that, that's that word, the result of this is that everyone who believes, again, 98 times used in the book, believe, put your trust in, rely on him, accept that. 
I like the word appropriate. Appropriate who he is and what he is giving to you. Believe in him. You will not perish, but you will have eternal life. Now, let's talk about eternal life. Most of my life, I've thought eternal life meant you live forever. Okay? You believe in God, you get to live forever. You think about this. Everybody lives forever. Everybody's going to live forever, either just in God's presence or not in God's presence. Everybody lives forever. Eternal life is something different. Eternal life is a quality of life. And John makes that clear because he defines it in John chapter 17. When Jesus is praying for his disciples, he says this, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not length of life. Everybody's got length of life. Eternal life is the quality of life of knowing God and knowing his son. That's what's available to us. God loved the world in this way. He sent his only begotten son, his unique son. And whoever believes in him would have a different quality of life. For eternity, yes. But it's a different quality of life that John is going to say starts now. Paul, in 1 Timothy 6.12, one of my favorite verses, Paul says this, fight the good fight of faith. And then he says, take hold of eternal life. Begin to experience this. And as you, as a believer, read the Gospel of John, I'm going to tell you, it's not just evangelistic. It is, do you believe this? If you believe it, live the eternal life, which is knowing God, knowing his Son, in fellowship with him, guided by him. Um, that's the Gospel in a nutshell. Here's the Gospel in a nutshell, too. He's the Son of God. Look at this. He turned water into wine. He healed the official son. Um, he healed an invalid. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. He healed a blind man. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and he raised himself from the dead. He proved that he's the Son of God. Seven times he says, I am. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine. And then a bunch of times he says, I am. He's proving who he is. And then when he gets the disciples in the upper room, and he's training them for his departure, uh, what he does is he gives them an example of his service at the beginning. He washes their feet, and at the end, he prays for them, another service to them. Um, he's going to tell them, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'm leaving, and I'm leaving the Holy Spirit. And right in the middle, he tells them, abide in me. Um, he serves us. He's leaving the Holy Spirit with us. And our responsibility is to abide in him. So where does this gospel fit? Where does all this fit? John's gospel approaches the life of Christ totally different than the, than the synoptics. 92% of the material is unique to John. I'll talk about this more next week. John starts his gospel with a clear declaration of the deity of Christ in that prologue, which parallels the opening chapters of Genesis. Genesis in the beginning, John in the beginning. John clearly states his purpose to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that people would believe and find life. John likes to present Jesus in dialogue with others. That's what he's doing in this book. So what should we believe? We should believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Christ, the long-awaited Savior, promised in the Old Testament. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are doing too. He's got a similar purpose there. 
But unique to John is him telling us that only by having faith in Jesus, receiving his provision of salvation, can a person find eternal life. And that's not length of life, that's quality of life. Are you experiencing that quality of life? Or do you just make, you know, I believe, so I'm living forever. And now I'm just having fun. Just waiting. A little disappointed that he's not delivering on some of the things I'd like him to deliver on. Or do you really have eternal life now? You're in fellowship with the Father. You know the Son, and you're living for him. How should we behave? Accept the provision of salvation through Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, this gospel is written 98 times. It says all you got to do is believe it. Believe he is who he says he is, the Son of God, and that he can do what he said he could do, and that is by his death and resurrection, he can save you from your sins. Believe that. You'll have life, and you'll be connected to him, and then you can abide in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in spite of opposition. And by the way, if, you're not, if there's no opposition in your life, either from the world or from Satan, if there's no opposition... I'm not sure you're experiencing eternal life. Share the message of eternal life through Jesus Christ with others. Three next steps. Believe that Jesus is the anointed provision of God for salvation. As the Son of God, only he can provide eternal life. Only he can provide the quality of life that is worth living now and worth living for all eternity. In the meantime, abide in Jesus, staying closely connected to him as the source of your very life and rely on the Holy Spirit to guide you and sustain you through tough times. That's what Jesus came to do is to to provide us with eternal life. And then he gave us the Holy Spirit so he could guide us in how we live that life connected to the Father, knowing Jesus more, falling more deeply in love with him all the time. Father, thank you for this simple yet powerful, powerful message. Lord, I I pray that we would not um, get lost in the simplicity of John 3.16, but we would be um, astonished by the complexities of John 3.16. Father, may um, may we understand really fully who, who Jesus is and what he came to do. And may we embrace and take hold of the eternal life that he provides for us. Amen.